This episode's guest is Tom Purvis from TomPurvis.com and founder of ExerciseProfessional.com and Resistance Training Specialist. Tom has been educating personal trainers nationally and internationally since 1989. Trainers entering the field in the past decade probably have not heard of Tom. In the past 15 years, he has dramatically reduced his travel commitments to focus on a few long-term projects as well as life. Nevertheless, his monthly classes at RTS, the Resistance Training Specialist Program, are regularly sold out with every seat occupied by only the most committed forward-thinking trainers, therapists, and specialists from around the world. To get Tom's full bio, you can head over to the show notes where it is linked up. On this episode, I asked Tom about his background. We discussed Newell's theory of constraints-based learning. I asked Tom how he became so fascinated with exercise biomechanics, and I asked Tom about his educational resources and the curriculum of his courses. Guys, this was an outstanding conversation with Tom, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Mr. Tom Purvis, thank you so much for making time to speak to me today. I, I know this is something we've been trying to lock down for a, a number of months, but finally we... Uh, a year? <laughs> yeah, we're face-to-face. We're yeah. -face. Uh, listen, better late than never. Just for the listeners, Tom, who aren't familiar with you, uh, give us your whole background. I always love digging into people's background just to give more context. So where are you from, grew up, sports played, and where are you currently are now? Well, you know, there's about 20 pages of my background on my website that does not include anything prior to when I was 30 years old. So <laughs> um, that, would, that would be a long, relatively boring topic. What do you really want to know specifically about my background so that I don't go off onto a tangent about uh, this one girl I dated that was really amazing or something like that, you know? Well, let's, let's get into that. Let's get into this girl so we can get into your psychology. <laughs> How are you joking? No, I suppose, like, where are you from? Um, sports played? I mean, because I suppose it, it all leads up to where you are today, which is, you know, you are one of the most respected individuals when it comes to, I suppose, exercise mechanics, the biomechanics of exercise, the individual prescription of exercise execution, anything around that sort of area when it comes to resistance training. So, I mean, obviously everything that's happened in your life up until now has led you to be where you are right now, which is talking to me, which, you know, is yeah. So I'm from the middle, almost exact middle of the United States. Um, it's the part that uh, the coasts fly over and look down and wonder if there's any people there or not. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, I really was not interested in sports much at all. And I tell you, when you're relatively big for your age, mostly height when you're, you know, junior high more than anything else. Um, and realize back then, as dumb as this sounds, there was still a belief system in a lot of the coaches that you don't want to lift weights because it'll slow you down. It'll reduce flexibility, a word I hate, by the way, it's a misnomer. Um, you know, so it, it was kind of just beginning this idea of, and people go, well, that's crazy, that's not possible, but it's true. It's, it, was, it was the uh, end of a generation and the upcoming of a new one that said, well, we gotta do, strength training appears to be helpful for a variety of sports, maybe all sports. And so, um, anyway, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go out for football, our football, um, and um, I hated it, mostly hated the coaches. Honestly, because there was zero progression, there was zero information, there was not any education in what we were doing. They acted like everybody already knew because most of the kids had played little league type stuff since they were five years old and I absolutely didn't care. But they enticed me to go out. So I'm like, okay, I'm here, teach me what to do. And they're like, well, go hit somebody. And I'm like, why, what's the point? What are we trying to accomplish here? What do we, I need to know something. And it's like, I don't know. And it's probably not coaching in general, although that was been the, the bulk of my experience. I finally ended up, if you want to know about sports, I w wrestled for a brief period. It was not that great. I didn't start till I was, I don't know, 15 or something. And again, everybody had been doing it since they were six. Um, but I was stronger than most of them. By then, I had started lifting weights, which was really, when I was 12, I got interested in lifting weights. And my dad had a, a barbell set, a York barbell set that he got in 1948, something like that. And so that's what I was using, you know, in my bedroom or garage or depending on the time of year. But anyway, um, the coach was great. 
they were really teaching things. They were really inspiring you to think and have strategy. And it's, and I know that existed in other sports, but I was not introduced to it by those particular coaches. So coaches out there, trainers, education is everything. If you just tell somebody to do something and do 10 reps, you're messing up. And I hear a lot of people say, and I bring this up about research all the time. It's like, guys, you didn't teach them. If I improve the skill of the squat, the bench press, the whatever, the outcome will change even if they don't get officially stronger. They'll appear stronger. They will move more weight. And these researchers tell me all the time, no, 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 we taught them how to do it. And I said, how long did you spend doing that? No, we, we showed them how. I was like, across how many weeks? And they're like, well, we just told them, you know, before they did it. And I'm like, oh, my God, that does not create a skill. That would be like me literally handing you a baseball and saying, now, listen, what you're going to do is you're going to kind of put it back here, and it's going to end up over there, and it really needs to hit within the square this big. And so there, I taught you how to pitch. And a lot of people would go, but pitching is a very different skill than bench press. So I'm going to go, yeah, kind of. But have you ever met a power lifter? The flawlessness? which they perform a bench press, you can't screw up, you can't waver, you can't wobble if you got 600 pounds on you. So there's a tremendous skill associated with this that regular fitness people and general coaches absolutely do not get because they're so interested in making people generally tired, which is an easy way out and a mindless kindergarten way to train people. Anyway, back to your question. I told you this would happen. I told you and I warned you this would happen. So there you go. Anyway, um, that just kind of on and off through the rest of high school became my thing. There was one real gym in this city. You know, I was in a suburb, so I had to drive about 20 miles each way to get to the gym. And it was all homemade equipment and, you know, carpeting that was taken out of some dumpster somewhere. And it was the 70s, so the colors were, you know, avocado green and harvest gold and these wonderful things. It was all shag, this shag like this that held, held mildew and bacteria and all kinds of stuff. And it was awesome. And the water fountain leaked, so it was like a swamp back there. And uh, it was that old school stuff that you just fall in love with. You hate it or you fall in love with it, right? And it's a bunch of rough guys who actually end up having good hearts, but they didn't talk to you if you're a kid for like two years. But if you hung in there, then they take you under their wing and show you how to hurt yourself properly. And so it was just that kind of thing. And when I actually started college, I'd been, you know, high school, you do it for a month, you lay off for a month, you do it for two months, you lay off for two months. And I started college and I said, all right, I'm either going to do this or I'm not. And I don't think I ever missed a day again for 15 years, which probably was a mistake, but it was, you know, it's, it's, it's that philosophy of work ethic. Harder you work, the more you get. If you don't, if you don't feel like going, if you're sick, suck it up. And so uh, it's just the way it was back then. But anyway, I, all I knew was bodybuilding. We didn't even have much powerlifting in that specific uh, gym. And there was really only one guy that competed that I actually knew. But he was a cool friend. And so I ended up later doing that. Maybe I was out of school and out of physical therapy school, which was another interesting thing because I got into physical therapy school pretty much for one reason. And it was exercise. Back then, there was no exercise science degree. There was no kinesiology degree, at least not around here. Um, and so there was a PE, a physical education degree. And I was like, I don't care about that. I don't want to coach, you know, physical education class for five-year-olds. And this is not, I want to know about exercise itself. Physical therapy was the thing I went into. I was fortunate enough to get in because it was very competitive, especially back then. Um, and that was a really, you were talking about the, the things that led to today. That was a key component because in so many ways, bodybuilding was over here. I literally lived to kill myself in the gym. You know that, that mindset, for better or for worse, the more it hurt, the better. And we really didn't distinguish types of pain. You know, people were rubbing their elbows with DMSO, but that's okay because no pain, no gain. We didn't distinguish that from muscular challenge. And so, but at the same time, I'd spend eight hours or more a day helping people with exercise who couldn't stand, who'd had a stroke, who'd been in a coma for three months and just now woke up and could not begin to do anything, even lift their arm. And that, Robbie's a totally, it's a monstrous dichotomy. It's a monstrous spectrum. It's not two different things. It became quite obvious to me 
that it was a spectrum. If someone couldn't lift their arm, and I was lifting my arm with X number of pounds, kilograms, whatever, how was that different? Well, the gym people would see it as different. One was something, the other was nothing. I simply saw it as muscles in a certain state of being able to generate tension, and all we were trying to do was stimulate them to respond with creating more tension, creating more size, whatever the goal would be. And that was what was funny to me about when the functional training world came along, because their idea of function is so far removed from the realities of function. You want to learn about function, get somebody who can't get out of bed and then help them get out of bed. And you don't help them get out of bed, get out of bed by getting them out of bed. Because when you do, they crash to the floor. They don't have the strength to do that. They don't have the muscular control balance or more importantly, ability to generate tension. So this idea of functional training is interesting. It is at one far, it's not necessarily bad, except it's poorly executed by most people who don't understand human function. But it is one end of a continuum. It is one end of great exercise when executed properly, which is not offered by any certification I'm aware of, um, versus human function. What I've come to call external performance, what we see and measure with numbers. Internal performance, which is simply how well is the internal operating? How well are your muscles operating? How well are your joints operating? Because as much as people talk about integrated exercise, they absolutely do not know what integrated exercise is. Because they say we isolated, and they don't know what isolated is either, because there's nothing body isolated. Um, but, you know, they say isolation doesn't work, integration's where it is. And if you ask somebody, what does integration mean? You will occasionally get the correct definition, but more often than not, they'll give you an example of an exercise. Integration means putting together of parts, of components, of factors, of pieces, a process by which multiple things come together to make a, a bigger conglomerate thing occur. Integration is by definition built on isolation. So this is really, really funny that instead of creating, you know, humans like to make, create battles. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it the blue team? Is it the red team? When in fact, these things are very often continuums. That's why I trademarked the name continuum training. Because what we're doing is finding where people reside currently. And I don't mean the person in general, different parts. I may have someone whose ankle function is incredibly far down the, the stage, the side of the continuum where it needs to improve its operational capabilities. The rest of their body may just kick ass. They might be able to bend steel. So can I say this person is one place or another? I can't. It, their components are at different places and their ability to use the components are thereby degraded because a key component is missing. So this is a really, really, really Actually, it should be common sense. It's unfortunate that it's an, it's an advanced way to think in our industry, but then the bar is so low to get in our industry. Uh, it, I guess it's really not surprising. But anyway, that became the thing. When I was bodybuilding and had won a level of competition, you know, or what, what we would call a state level, and at the same time, I was practicing as a physical therapist, and I was torn up. My knees were killing me, or my shoulders were killing me. I got to where no matter how strong I was, I almost couldn't lift anything a year after I won a big stupid trophy. And people were asking me questions. They were like, oh gosh, how do you, how do, you do this? And how do you build arms? And how do you, all this stupid stuff that people do just because someone looks big, relatively big for that particular facility. And uh, in my mind, I couldn't, I couldn't rightfully tell them. I felt like a hypocrite. I was like, if I knew what I was doing, A, I think I'd be bigger. Because in my mind, at 6'2", I needed to weigh, you know, 485 pounds to kind of sort of look big. And, uh, and I was a physical therapist. I'm supposed to know all this stuff. And I realized that my education, both in the gym and formal training in school with a license to practice, taught me nothing about what I needed to know about the human body relative to exercise, nor how to help someone else with it. Because no matter what I figured out about myself, one of the things you learn in physical therapy really fast, unless you've turned into one of these protocol robotic therapists, you learn that nobody responds the same to the same thing. And so those became major themes for me, was I need to sit back and learn to look at the body from the inside. I need to learn to build the exercise for me. And then separately, I need to learn to build the exercise differently or however is appropriate for my individual client or patient. In order to do that, I had to rethink the body. And it really, honestly, is surprising to me. Nobody really did this before me. 
it's almost should be embarrassing for the industry because I'm not that smart. But I focused on one thing and I was relatively skilled at one thing and as seeing things mechanically. I swear I was the first person to ever talk about joints in a specific manner relative to exercise starting in 1984, five, six. I could be wrong. I obviously don't know everybody. But back then, the people I knew from Lee Haney to, you know, the Arnold era people, they all had joint stuff going on. So if they knew about joints, what they knew about was levels of pain <laughs> and not necessarily function. So, um, and again, I use function internally. How do joints operate? Um, so that became my focus. And, and in the beginning, I think I say on a YouTube video or something about my interest in chest stuff because my shoulders were killing me and it did seem while seeming can be wrong, they're more soft tissue, very almost ice pick pinpoint anterior shoulder. I went in the gym for three hours one day and did not train and I just watched from the head end of a bench press sitting on the spotter stand of an incline. I watched a dozen, maybe two dozen people come in and bench press. And I saw two people that did it differently than everybody else. They were the strongest people. They performed it in a very specific way. And when I slowly learned, I had terrible what the world will call proprioception, which is a, a small fraction of the total awareness required to own your body. But um, it took me a year or so to learn how to do it the way they did because I could not feel where my shoulder blades were. I could not feel where I was because when you grow up in the gym, your goal is to move weight, not to control your body at all. And you think about people saying, oh, never think about your body. It's all about motions, not muscles. It's like, I understand, but controlling the body, motion is not just where your hand goes. It's, think about ice skaters, people who really own their bodies, ice skaters, people in ballet, and you're going, what does it have to do with it? They own their bodies. And then you consider that we might challenge how they own their bodies, but they don't start out just moving stuff randomly and hope for control. You know what I mean? And we do it, we do it the opposite in exercise or so it seems. Um, anyway, it took me years. In fact, still to this day, I feel like I'm still analyzing the body. And every time I look at something, I'm looking at it with a very different mind and very different eyes because of what I've known before. One of the things I hate about supposed experts is when they rest on their laurels, they kind of learn something. And especially if it's just repeated sound bites from somebody else, they don't know anything. And if they're not constantly asking, what am I missing? If they're not constantly growing, and I don't mean looking for new protocols, and I don't mean making up new gimmicks and marketing tools. I mean, trying to figure out the guts of stuff. And that was the big theme right there for me because nobody bodybuilds forever. And it was, there was a quite obvious point when I tried to go to a national level Everybody I was competing with in heavyweights were, uh, they were 5'9 in my same weight, 220 or whatever, 230. And I'm like, okay, I'm out. This is not it. So I continued to do it just for fun. And eventually I said, why am I killing myself? Why am I, and by then I wasn't really doing things the way that actually hurt anymore uh, in a negative way. But I was like, you know, you got to, at some point when you're 30, you're, things are going to start, you're not going to keep getting better. You're just not. And 30, 35, 40, whatever it is for people at some point, and usually joints start falling apart. I was talking to a guy the other day who had been a bodybuilder. He was about 50 now. He was telling me all the stuff he'd torn. He was telling me all the stuff that hurt. He was telling me, and he still went in the gym and did everything the same way that he could. <laughs> some things he couldn't do at all, but it was interesting. And, and that's when, um, you know, I had friends at that stage of life that were absolutely just quitting training. They were like, ah, I'm not getting anywhere. And I was like, yeah, but compare yourself to the rest of the people walking around the city, you look great, man. And you feel great, you know, and you're relatively, I don't know, you're in good shape and you're one of a few and they would just quit. And I was like, but, but this community in the gym was fun to me at that point in time. Now I mostly hate people, so I don't care. But um, the biggest thing was I loved exercise. I just loved it. I loved that word I said a minute ago. I loved absolutely love the guts of it. I love figuring out the inside of it. And the inside for me was not stupid mitochondria and the crap we learned in school because you cannot determine how to build an exercise for someone's shoulders by worrying about mitochondria. That stuff does not matter. Now I just made somebody mad and I don't care. You need to listen to me, whoever's mad, because it's your ego, not reality. The reality is you have to build, you have to design the exercise for the person, custom fit, they have to execute it in a progressive manner, meaning the way I would like for, to see them do it a year from now has nothing to do with what they can or cannot do today. It is childish to impose upon someone 
Listen, you go to learn math. Do they start with calculus? I'd love to take every trainer out there and say, all right, if you got the balls, come, come to my math class because I'm going to slap you in the face with calculus. And if you can't do it, just think about all the people you threw under the bus in the exercise world. And then you, met, you said, oh, you'll get there. Oh, no pain, no gain. I'm going to hurt your brain thinking if you're willing to, and then I'm going to make fun of you. No way. I'm going to back off and we're going to learn addition, subtraction, all that stuff. And so we just don't do that in the exercise world. And people go, oh, we progress. We, uh, we use less weight. It's like, oh, my God, you don't understand exercise at all. You don't understand it at all if you think less weight is the only way to progress. It's the very last thing we should worry about. But that's the difference between understanding the guts of exercise and being a true master of something is always asking yourself, what am I missing? Being a master of something, first of all, it's never a place. It's not a degree. It's a, it's a way of living. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of striving for lifelong education. And someone you, you'll know out there if you're a master in the way you live and the way you participate, because it's not insecurity. It's not lack of confidence to ask yourself, what am I missing? In fact, it's quite the opposite. You're brave and you're strong enough to say, Man, I, I think I know something, but that's never enough. It's never enough. What can I learn from watching this person, from watching them wince, from what they appear to feel, from, from thinking differently? Reinforcing what we already know is not mastery. When people say, oh, I've got 20 years experience, I watch them in the gym and I'm like, dude, you got two months of experience. You've been repeating every two months for 20 years. You suck. And people are like, how can you say that? I have a full schedule. It's like, you know, even the worst auto mechanics, their parking lot's full of cars to work on. But the best ones are somewhere between they don't care what you think. They were going to work on race cars because they love and they have a passion for it. And they don't have a full parking lot. They've got a full schedule for the next three years. They have people returning forever. And that's the big thing about what people are doing. This day, especially of online training, people are like, oh, my clients are making progress. If someone is tolerant, if they have a high level of internal tolerance, and that's neurological, it's, it's force-related, it's so many things, they will make progress for a while. The question is never if they're making progress. The question is, is it sustainable? Because if they can't keep it, it didn't matter. I know a guy has a couple hundred million dollars, and he told me one time, listen, to some degree, it doesn't matter how much money you make today. It matters how much you keep in the end. So he was talking about people in a variety of industries who made a million dollars a year and did, uh, 10 years later didn't have much. Well, it's not good or bad, but it could be bad choices if, you're, if your goal was to actually acquire something, to sustain something. I think that should be part of health and fitness more than any other thing is can you sustain what you're achieving. And part of that boils down to, well, several things. Is what you're hoping to achieve sustainable? Number two, is your process by which you're working on sustainable goals, sustainable processes? Or is it a sustainable process or processes? Because if they're not, there's an inevitable end. Um, now, the interesting thing, Robbie, <clears throat> having said all this stuff, a little bit about my background, you know, words are cheap and words are empty, and really nobody knows about me now. Nobody watches me challenge myself confidently all the time, and not because I think I come up with the right answers. I always assume my answer I get is pretty good for today. It's going to be wrong tomorrow to some degree. If it keeps proving itself, then it's good again for today. And so that's a really, really important thing to me is that your experts – should never act like experts. They have some things to share that they've learned. Their learning and what they think they've learned is not something to rest on. It's not something to throw at you like, hey, look at me, which is what social media is. Social media experts, man, I can annihilate them left and right all the time. It gets actually embarrassing. Because um, they're not really experts. They're in the, hey, look at me mode. And, and that's just sad. And the problem is for all the trainers trying to come into this thing, you know, if you're coming into it thinking, I want to be a trainer, I like this and I like that and I like working out, 
you may be in it for the wrong thing. If you come into it with an appreciation for that stuff and some experiences, A, your experiences are never enough. B, your book learning is never enough. C, it's all about the individual client. And if you're like most physical therapists or physiotherapists now, and you're living in a world of protocols, especially as demanded by insurance companies, you're not a master of anything. If you have a doctorate in physical therapy and you're living by a protocol, you are a kindergartner with a really expensive kindergarten degree. And, you know, I'm rattling on here, but these things are such major themes. I used to just sit back and go, why are these people doing that? But I assume they saw what I saw. I assume they had my experiences. And they don't. And most people, are, most people, as you probably have experienced in your life, are perfectly happy with where they are. And if they aren't perfectly happy, sometimes they think it's about jumping ship and going to a new career, a new job. You know what? Wayne Dyer and a lot of other people have said over the years, I was fortunate enough to have met Wayne Dyer before he died, but uh, he said, you know, wherever you go, the problem is there you are. <laughs> so you can go to a new career, but you bring along your stuff. And if that is lack of great perspective, if it's thinking that everything comes from, you, you get smart outwardly from, and memorizing and intelligence are, are so far removed from each other. School teaches us how to memorize. We're rewarded for that. People that actually do well out there in the world have to think. True professionals live in a process of decision-making, and that decision-making does not include protocols. It includes questioning the protocols, using the pieces that matter on a given day. Progress cannot be predetermined. Assessments cannot be predetermined because the assessments that are predetermined don't tell us anything about what we need to know today. Everything we do is in and of itself an assessment. I don't have to wait for you to finish a painting to go, wow, that's a masterpiece or wow, that's kind of a paint by number, okay thing, or wow, that sucks. I can watch probably as you're going along and part of your process could be something we wanna stop and work on. So maybe that's a bad analogy, but I, you, might, you might understand where I'm going with that. It's like, you don't, this idea of I'm going to check your bench press and then six weeks later, eight weeks later, 12 weeks later, I'm going to check your bench press again. It's like, you know, I, I can watch. Number one, doing a one rep max in the beginning is so unethical, despite being normal in our stupid industry. But I can watch you improve in your motor skills and go, your bench press is improving. Only children claim a better bench press by the numbers. The numbers are the end result of incredible motor learning, neurological improvement, both locally in terms of the function at, at the microscopic level, as well as your brain putting it together in a skill, muscular tolerance and tension develop improvement. So many things going on. The numbers don't reflect that. The numbers are for fun. The numbers are what we do in sports. If you really want to work with someone's health and you really want to help someone, it's about owning their bodies. Nobody, when they're 80 years old, 60 years old, 40 years old nowadays, that's not in the gym, 40-year-old people running out there, been sitting at computers for, you know, in video games since they were 10. Those people don't have improved quality of life by worrying about the numbers on a bench press or a squat. The older they get, it becomes incredibly obvious they don't own their bodies. And people go, what do you mean by that? It's like, well, what do you think I mean by that? Put a little oomph into your brain and go, own your body. You mean balance? Well, balance is a, is a piece of it. But you don't improve balance in those people by getting on a balance board. you got to start where they are. If they can't control their body on flat ground, then wobbly ground is not good yet, is it? I mean, I don't know why we can't figure those things out in this industry. It's just really, really, really a nightmare to me. And it boils down to are the supposed experts, people that want to be great trainers, are they willing to challenge themselves? Are they willing to admit they don't know much, no matter how much they know? And that when a client walks in, a, a new person, you got two choices. Sit back and say, I got to learn about this person. It's going to be an ongoing process. Or throw at them the same workout you did with somebody else, in which case I don't think you're worth a penny. So... There, I told you to ask questions. It's your fault that I talked that long, not mine. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, I had the mic off there, and I just said I'd sit back and, and listen because I knew, I know, you I knew you turned my mic off. 
<laughs> no, listen, that, that's all phenomenal stuff. And a lot of what you said there, I can fully resonate with. One thing that does come into my mind, uh, Tom, just, and this is a little side note before, I actually didn't have this down as an official question, but a lot of what you speak about really aligns with Newell's constraints-led approach to learning. So he has those those three main factors that are involved in learning, and that is the organism itself, the task and the environment. And you just kind of, now I'm just paraphrasing, but you were saying essentially like, you know, I could be executing a squat or a bench or a deadlift today, and I could be doing it like six months and a year from now. And the way that I needed to execute that initially could be very different to the way I need to execute it you know, that's six months to 12 months down the road because me as an organism has changed, whether it's because I have more hypertrophy on or from just the neurological learning or from even the emotions in my brain in that moment. So, you know, whereas like, and you know this as well as anyone, and this seems to be the message I always get from you is, you know, that everyone just wants this textbook, everyone should squat bench it out this way. But not only is it different from one individual to another, even within an individual themselves, what was previously and quote-unquote, I suppose there is no optimal, but what, what was quote-unquote needed for that individual to meet the task at hand, whether it was a squat bench deadlift at one moment in time, could be very different to what they need to execute that quote-unquote same exercise in another moment in time because so many things can influence an organism again. So you have the organism, the constraints, and the task. And again, an easy example is like, what if I'm now 50 pounds heavier? It's like the way you used to deadlift and squat is going to have to change because you're not the same organism now. It's well, a new constraint. If I can interrupt you for a second, there's Go ahead. Yeah. a couple of things there. One, if I'm 50 pounds heavier and it's all around my waist and hips, my center of mass is different than it's 50 pounds all around my chest and yeah. traps. But the other thing is, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to reconsider a word or maybe what I should do is ask what you mean by this word so I'm on the same page as you. The word need, needs to do a squat differently. I'm going to, based on my interpretation, correct me if I'm wrong or if this is not where you're going. Mm. I'm, going to put, I'm going to substitute the word need with can. The way they can do it a year from now may be very different. What they need to do is something else in my mind. Yeah. What they need to have available within themselves in order to improve. And I don't know, there's a huge thing there, but I, is that is that wrong of me? Am no, I no, you're hundred percent right. And I think just from what I think, because I heard your previous interview with Ben, I think I know where you're coming from in that, like using the word need. Cause I remember in that interview, you said one of the first questions you always ask an individual is, well, why do you think you need to do this exercise? Would that be? Yeah, and that's the, the word. Why do you think that's the fallacy of it. Yeah. I mean, if you, oh, I need to do it to get bigger. It's like, I know those have been associated since 1845, you know, <laughs> but how do you know that's what you need to do that? How about we explore? And, I, and the word need also is important to me because sometimes when I'm talking from a different context about that really wonderful word, what does someone actually need to have in place? What do they need functioning or operating within their body to perform this thing they think they yeah. want? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm sorry to mince words, but the, the thing I really want people to do out there is to start to understand the differences in these things mm. and to start yeah. to clarify what's going on in their heads because we can only make, this is a really general statement, our decision-making process is only as good as our clarity within our minds of the pieces and the steps of the process. And if my only evidence of those things are to watch a trainer and to see their actions with someone or the words they use to describe it. And most people are a not clear enough in their head about what they're thinking to, to generate the need for a vocabulary. There's that word again. So they just throw words at it. And I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm trying to make this a lesson for everybody out there um, to step up their game in terms of vocabulary and what they're trying to say. And, and, and sometimes without a doubt, a true master can take the most detailed principle, you know what I'm saying, and boil it down to this quote where you go, wow, that means something. But to apply it to your life, you got to go back and start looking at the details in your life, their life, their abilities, their needs as an organism. So that's, there's a huge pile of lessons in there. And I'm sorry to interrupt you for that, but it's just such a great thing to talk about for, and for people to say, 
what is mastery and how can I start participating? Mincing, defining these words, you know, sometimes this, I used to talk about this and, and Robbie, I completely forgot, but um, people who don't want to have these conversations will often go, well, that's just semantics. And I said, wait, 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 you're using just semantics to dismiss the differences in these words. Do you even know what semantics as a word means? And they obviously don't because semantics means the meaning of words. So I will say to them, it's not just semantics, it's entirely semantics. And without appreciating that, we can't agree, disagree, or come to any rational conclusion because we're often talking about very different scenarios. Would you agree? Absolutely. And it's, and uh, I, I, I 100% um, agree with what you are trying to articulate there or what you are articulating there because a very good mentor of mine, James Fitzgerald from OPEX, he has often, um, we, like we have often had this conversation about how we are articulating our certain points and how that's completely can be completely perceived differently by the individual that we're trying to communicate with. So because words mean so many different things to different individuals, I suppose it's, it kind of goes back to that book, the four agreements with Don Miguel Ruiz and his, his first agreements is being impeccable with your word because words can have so many meanings to different people, you know, and it's, I a hundred percent agree with what you, and it's funny because when you did say that the word need, it, it it completely resonates with me. That's kind of what James would do too. He goes, what do you mean by need? And then he was, this would probably be a better word for your articulation, what you were trying to say. So I, I do, I 100% agree. And it's funny too, um, there was a gentleman called Jock Fresco. He's a f- phenomenal human being. Well, to me anyway, I thought he was. He, he um, started the Venus Project, which is based in Venus, Florida. And he was a guy who proposed like a whole new like world's, system structure like he was like get rid of monetary environment economic system and he's like put in a resource-based economy and it was also algorithms and computers that would be objective so like we would actually have objective like maths and engineering to determine what was needed by the world's people and all that so like subjective humans like politicians wouldn't be involved but his one of the things he got is like he was his whole thing was like the this language he said is such a redundant medium for people to communicate with because just right now like as in like my spoken word meant something different to me than it did to you. And it could lead to a big misinterpretation like the Bible. <laughs> like if Jesus came back, like, yeah, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But Jock's whole point was like, he's like, if I was an engineer from America and you were an engineer in China, he said, there's no miscommunication because he's like, maths is universal. So he was basically saying like, really, we should just speak through like science as much as possible. So it's just well, like as long uh, as you get rid of people, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, I know. But that was the point he was kind of trying to make. It was kind of like think that uh, tongue-in-cheek type statement. But uh, again, completely, completely resonate me personally. I don't know. I can't say for my listeners, but I completely resonate with the point you were trying to make. Tom, just how did this begin, though, in terms of? So we know that you were in physical therapy school, and then you came to this realization that oh my god, like you, you can't have this cookie cutter approach of applying exercise to anyone, whether it be the actual mechanics of the exercise or the prescription of the exercise. Like, cause I heard you say with Ben too, like, like, you know, like some people say you are a biomechanist and you're like, I'm not, I'm just someone who's like very, I have a huge love and respect for biomechanics. So where, what, what, like, what did that beginning look like? Like, did you just go back to a library and like, just pick up a biomechanics book and study the shit out? Oh, you gotta get rid of libraries for that stuff, man. Well, whatever. Like, so where did that journey start? Like, like, well, if anybody that watches any of my um, <clears throat> presentations in detail, and there's about 120 hours on exerciseprofessional.com currently, and that's going to be about 50% more than that in the end, maybe. Um, people are always, they'll hear me talk about something like, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole much, but force or torque. And they'll hear me talk about it. And they'll say, where can I learn more about that? I said, I just said for an hour, all these examples of how this book presents it incorrectly for our purposes. This book presents it to Wikipedia, incorrect for our purposes. And I'm like, now you want me to recommend one of these incorrect things? How about you come back and sit down and learn this presentation? Because I've spent 30 years trying to get this to apply in exercise professionals' minds to exercise. I have never, ever, 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 ever seen 
Now that sounds like I've seen everybody. I have never seen anybody take a biomechanics class in college and apply it to exercise in an individual ever. Not once because colleges for the most part don't apply biomechanics internally. They apply it externally. They want to look at a gymnast doing, you know, on the high bar, going all the way around. Look who centers masses now. That's how he keeps going around the bar. I'm like, yeah, but what the hell about his shoulder? You know, and so it's just interesting to me. I don't find any of that helpful. I, I was an adjunct professor of biomechanics for a while, and I tried to take it that direction. And it, it didn't work because they couldn't pass the test. They could do better with patients at the physical therapy school, but they couldn't, they couldn't pass the test. So it's like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't as, as, as the word is used out there. Now, biomechanics is a big, you know, even looking at the motility within your GI tract is officially, to some people, part of biomechanics. So this is a giant, to a, to a um, what's it called, those guys that look at bugs, entomologist or whatever? I don't remember. But um, the way, a, the way a, a beetle walks is biomechanics. So it's a huge umbrella. I am not just looking inside the body. In general, I'm looking at the specific movements and forces of exercise. Traditional is one way of looking at it. What I learned in the bodybuilding world in the 70s, which was closely related to the 60s, which was closely related to the 50s, and go on, versus, wait a minute, let's revisit this thing for the same goal as what they were hoping to achieve over here, but how would I do it for my shoulder? How would I do it for shoulders in general, given that this thing violates all shoulders over here? But Arnold was big. Yeah, but he was torn up. And by the way, you're not Arnold. And I don't just mean that in terms of the opportunity for hypertrophy, joint-wise. And I'm not sure his joints are all that happy now anyway. So there's, that's, that's really a thing that, that that's why I've, I've coined the word exercise mechanics, and people use it all the time while not actually doing exercise mechanics. Um, a lot of people out there doing exercise mechanics presentations on YouTube don't know that they're a third-generation Tom Purvis student, and they're butchering it. Um, so it's really interesting. I was drawing these lines um, representing the forces in exercise in the 80s, and people were going, well, that doesn't have anything to do with exercise. What, why are we even trying to learn this? And now it's funny because they're all over YouTube trying to do it. And they're, they're blatantly wrong. But then so was I in the 80s. Um, <laughs> it takes a lot of time to figure out what you're doing wrong and a willingness. But yeah, it's, to me, it's everything. And people go, well, you're biased towards exercise mechanics. And I'll say, well, let me, let me, yes, I am. And let me try to get you to understand it this way. What do I have to have before I can count reps? What do I have to have before I can get tired? I have to have the exercise. And the exercise is nothing but mechanics. Now, there's a guy in Portugal who's in Portuguese trying to beat me up for that. And he starts talking about the nervous system and motor learning and all this stuff. And I'm like, yes, but motor learning means the organization of muscular contraction. And while he says an exercise is not just torque, what the hell does he think muscles are doing? They're moving, controlling, stabilizing joints. Well, that boils down to torque. So he obviously doesn't understand the definition of torque because muscles do, at the joint level, nothing more in us than generate torque. And if someone really understands torque the way I teach it, and for those out there who go, I had torque in school, yes, then you learned it's a twisting force. It's a rotating force. It is not. That is an incorrect definition. That is in every biomechanics book. It is the mechanical ability of a force to generate rotary motion. It is not the force in and of itself. That is an, not just an important distinction. That is built upon the equation for calculating torque. And this is why if someone really learns what I've tried to, I've adapted my definitions to the mistakes students come with based upon the class they had, based upon having never heard it before. So it's really interesting how all this has evolved. But yeah, it's... This mechanics thing is first and foremost the priority. You have to build the exercise and you have to understand the mechanical entity. And you know what the nervous system in general is trying to do while at the microscopic level is trying to generate contraction and sense things in order to have a feedback loop, right? Sensory and motor. Afferent, efferent. 
The other thing it's trying to do is organize the contractions to meet your goal, to meet your intention. You want to jump, it's got to figure out how to do that. And it's not a first attempt right thing. That's the skill oriented process, right? So that learning to do it is a big deal. Whatever the activity is, learning to touch your nose again for someone who had a stroke is a skill oriented process. And if someone has not seen hundreds if not thousands of people who can't do whatever it is they're trying to impose upon them, they will never learn how to be great trainers. They will never learn how to be great therapists by blindly throwing things at people and just hoping or saying, oh, well, their body will catch up. We have to bring it down to that level in the same way that we do not take a beginner in the gym and put a thousand pounds of the bench press and go, oh, they will catch up, right? So building this exercise and then executing this exercise, your nervous system is primarily about dealing with physics. There's a great presentation on YouTube, and I can't remember the guy, but it talks about what's the purpose. He's got a great accent like yours, though. Everybody that sounds smart's either from Australia or somewhere over there in the UK or something, Ireland, you know, because it just, you guys automatically sound smart. Um, he certainly does. Uh, being from Oklahoma, I'm at a disadvantage because we instantly sound stupid. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. But he was going through this great TED, it's not YouTube, it's a TED talk. You know what I'm talking, you know what I mean? But yeah, I totally, I messed that up. But um, talks about, so what's the purpose for the human brain? What's the purpose for the human brain? And somebody right now could just search TED for brain or purpose of the brain or whatever. And I really, when he says the things he says, I went, I don't know about that. Usually when someone says, I don't know about that, it's because they truly don't know about that. What they think they're saying is, I object to that, I think. Well, I really, the more I thought about it, I probably listened to it 20 times. You know what it boils down to in my world? He ends up talking about the purpose of the brain is basically to generate movement. Skilled, orchestrated, highly advanced movement. And by the way, even the simplest movement, like a leg extension, is skilled and highly advanced. Anybody that thinks it's just, now I'm not promoting that specific exercise because I don't know who we're working with and what they need, et cetera, et cetera. I'm trying to get us to not be biased. I'm trying to get us to not think anything that appears simplistic in the body from the outside is even remotely simplistic on the inside. That's just evidence that people don't understand. So this guy's talking about the purpose of the brain is to generate this movement. Well, how does it generate movement? Uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, not tele telep uh, telepathy, but kinna, uh, what's that called? When you're moving stuff with your brain. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> not kinesis. Somebody out there saying it right now, sitting in their bathroom listening, and I'm... Is it telekinesis where you move stuff with your brain? Anyway, my point is that's not what the brain's organizing. That's not motor learning. It's organizing muscular contraction. For all the people who are like, it's all about movement. No, it's all about muscle because that's the engine, right? It is. The car is not all about driving. It's all about the stuff inside so you can drive it if you choose to. So, and that's not a biased statement. That's a reality. And anybody who's saying that's wrong needs to start asking to themselves, what am I missing? Because anybody that's, that's, that's offense, offended by that right now is following a religion, not a science, a religion built around facades of exercise, gurus, that kind of thing. Um, so anyway, yeah, this thing is organizing muscular contraction. And muscular contraction is, by definition, tension, which is, by definition, force. I had a, I had a myofascial guy, or what was he? He was, uh, his whole thing was, um, man, my brain's not working today at all. This tensegrity thing inside the body. And he goes, Tom, it's not about force. It's about tension. And I went, oh, dude, you might as well stop now. You're just chopping your foot off. Then you're chopping your knee off. Then you're... Tension is a type of force. These people know so little, they don't realize that they're being hypocritical and completely proving their ignorance and at the same time proving me right, which I love, unbeknownst to them. But um, this whole thing is mechanics. And then once we get better and better at organizing movement, we can start to challenge that movement, right? You can put some weight on it. You can increase the speed, but you have to own the movement before speed is actually speed. It's haphazard without the ownership. 
So these people were like, oh, you got to train fast because of what it does in the nervous system. I'm like, you know, you take somebody who's incredibly skilled in a movement, they can go fast, they can go slow. The movement quality doesn't change. You're taking these people and because of some quasi research out there that was done on some unrelated thing to exercise and the housewife, you got to move in fast because of their nervous system. Everything they're doing is somewhere between monstrously and minutely unskilled movement. So you're challenging something that doesn't exist yet. That is unethical for a true professional. So what is the skilled movement? It's the organization of forces called tension in order to do what? Deal with the forces on the planet. And that's more than just gravity. That's the inertial effects of your body or anything you're lifting. It's just a huge set of things that are not that complicated to learn, but people just are afraid of them. I spent 30 years blowing it down to, and while some people go, wow, that's really hard. It's like, that's what education is supposed to be. It's supposed to expand your mind. It's not supposed to make your little mind comfortable. If your mind is comfortable and you're calling it education, it's not education, right? There's gotta be a little bit of like a, a splinter in your mind that makes you go, oh, I gotta wrap my brain around this. But that's the whole thing is your organization, your brain's job as this guy presents on the TED Talk is to generate movement. And movement is entirely defined by and organized by the external forces in which you're moving, against which you're moving. And then put on top of that your intent of moving, how you're trying to move in those forces, Man, you got a whole different ball game. So is it, is it mechanics? Is that a bias statement? It's a bias statement and an unavoidable, unequivocally true one. There's a really great, um, well, not, not even just one, but there's a couple of great videos you have on your YouTube channel. No, I um, don't. Those all suck. <laughs> no, well, they're, they're not bad. Um, you, like, kind of what you touched on there in terms of one is about people kind of overcoming their bias with machine machine training and the reason was is you were like there was just so many different variables like people just think that oh it's just this one dimensional piece of equipment and you know every it just suits everyone and then like you were kind of like doing these random calculations not random but you were doing like these calculations on the fly you were like you know if there's like nine different settings to like the axis here and nine different settings to the seat and all and you were like there's 81 different potential variables then you were like the degrees of whatever person's joints and all degrees of freedom and the individual and you were just like just hundreds of variables to take in and then like as you were talking like you know anyone with half a bit of a brain would be like you know this guy's making a lot of sense here and then the other video was you had a female on a leg press showing like the difference between the difference in force that was being developed at a different setting so while the weight the, the plate stack was at the same weight and you were saying oh you know tom did 20 kilo and uh, Barry also did 20 kilo, but like Barry's five foot five and Tom's six foot two. So they had to put the leg press at different, like different settings. And you were like, they're not lifting the same weights because the internal forces are completely different. So they were, ju I just wanted to direct listeners to that, even to maybe start to understand some of this information. That and you're and I want to, I want to make sure we clarify that. Yeah. Those right. two things you mentioned are on very specific pieces of equipment. That's true. Yeah. It's, that's not a general statement, but the, on the ones you're talking about, those One are the strive two of, fusion, isn't it? Yeah, two of them are very. They're both very popular now. Is why I put those on YouTube. The biggest problem with equipment, number one, there's not a lot of good stuff out there. And I know people find their favorite brand and they go, but I think it's good. It's like, listen, you endorsing something that's a pile of shit doesn't make it any less a pile of shit. Uh, it smells the same, and you know, squash is the same. And it came out of the same hole. But, you know, the, the other thing is if you handed somebody something good, if I handed you the absolute best hammer in the world, it's balance, it's everything, that doesn't mean you can drive nails like an expert. You still have to know how to use it. So when people go, oh, a legacy instrument machine, you just sit down and use it. A, number one, it might be the worst one in the world. You better know a lot about how to use it for your individual client or know when not to. And number two, there's a lot of skill in setting that up. There's a lot of feedback required there's a lot and somebody can sit on a piece of equipment with five pounds on it 20 pounds and go this feels great yeah that doesn't matter it's when you're actually challenged by the load or at a, a rep range end of a set if you're actually going towards failure that's where the rubber meets the road man 
that's where the equipment truly shines or sucks is is when it's maxing you out and i don't mean one rep max but when you almost can't finish the rep that thing is make it or break it on your joints tissues and the outcomes great stuff it's time i won't keep you too much longer and um, plus it's a beautiful evening here in dublin so i probably Get outside see, man I, yeah i probably won't see sunshine until like next april so i just want to enjoy it now when i can but just finally, in terms of what you offer in terms of education online, I know in-person seminars are a bit in the back burner due to COVID um, at the moment. But um, just with your education, if you can, maybe go over some of the curriculum. Is that the right word? Curriculum. 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 Sorry, curriculum. I like yours better, quite frankly. <laughs> Critique. Cr- uh, um, yeah. But if you can go over what's covered in your courses and – Maybe for anyone who is very, very much interested, what sort of, I don't know, maybe would you, what information or material, or even, even if it's more like for them just to, to start thinking more in depthly, where would you encourage them to go before maybe engaging in some of your education to be a little more ready for the information, if that makes sense? First of all, what I offer is incredibly advanced. That's why, I, that's why I asked. <laughs> it's incredibly advanced, but not because it's necessarily hard. It's deep. It's detailed. If you go to exerciseprofessional.com, which is a delivery system for uh, eventually a lot of people's lecture-oriented presentations, that 120, soon to be 150 hours that I have on there, is in stages much like college would be or the university would be is there's like the thousands two thousands three thousands whatever the place probably to start is with the one thousands although i did have a guy who started the five thousands and i said you should go back and learn how to count anyway that stuff is for one purpose and one purpose only to prepare someone for hands-on practical education because people get in the gym and they want to explore exercise which is by far the most important thing, getting in the gym, exploring it on ourselves in ways we haven't, exploring it with other people in ways we have not, watching them and observing them in ways we have not, looking for things we've never looked for before, which not only includes what's going on in them, but what actually is an exercise made of. In the thousands, the place to start is the attempt at helping someone generate, should they choose to, an entirely different process of thinking and of thinking about exercise. So that is the place to start. The biggest problem is we suck as students. We watch a video as if we're watching The Matrix or Die Hard and we go, wow, that was entertaining or it wasn't. These things are to be internalized. They're to be contemplated. They are to be reviewed. And I don't mean, usually the word review means go back and scan over it. I write that word in my manuals, R-E hyphen view, because we need to re-view it with your new eyes that you have today and what you've learned along the way. And the whole purpose for that, if someone watches all that, enjoys it, hates it, but comes to know it, it doesn't do anything but allow them a level of communication in the gym. Guided, hands-on education in the gym, which is my favorite part. And hope we're gonna, we're gonna get back to it really soon in really small groups. Uh, for international students, my goal is to create because of the stuff that is now online and the number of days we can shave off of the individual practical weekends, I think we'll be able to put together uh, something that's pretty much catering to the international student, although anyone could come, but more like seven days in a row instead of multiple weekends, multiple flights, all that kind of stuff. You know, and all you guys, none of you work in December anyway, so you might as well come spend a week here. But the, the thing is that, um, we do have a level one and we do have a level two and those very often are the places to start because level one is about challenging your own thoughts from a traditionally taught exercise point of view. Here's how the world says, be it social media or Arnold, here's how the world says to do X exercise. Let's rethink this. So it really is a diving off point. And if someone goes, Oh, I went to RTS one, it's easy. Well, that's, that's the beginning. It's reformatting the brain so that you're in a place to go, I want to be advanced. I want to be able to have these conversations 
Now I think I'm advanced because of the way I, you know, I can lift a lot of weight, but without the communication ability, which represents your mental ability and clarity, we can't begin to make exercise decisions for all these people that we are responsible for. We are accepting their money, we're accepting the responsibility. I think it should be said out there in the world, this level of trainer you've just paid has no ability to make specific decisions for your issues. They will offer you general stuff. I wish that was said out there. I think every trainer would object to that. And if they object to it, why aren't they changing what they are doing? Rather than being offended by the label, change the thing that gave you the label. So this education, again, I want to reinforce, it's all about preparing for hands-on. There's a different amount or level of preparatory lectures online for the RTS2, which have resumed in various places depending upon their current COVID status. Um, so 50% of my people that come to see me have almost always been international. So they are my biggest concern. Um, and so that's why I was talking about us working on that, probably taking small groups, even at the point of like two to four max, and almost like setting up special present, special uh, schedule for them. It's like if four people can come, it's like, when do you guys want to do this? Let's get you together, rather than just throwing it on a calendar and saying who wants to. Anyway, those are just some ideas, but, but that's a place to dive off is with those things. Guys, I need everybody out there to know that what is on YouTube, I've had people say to me, emails, whatever. Oh, I've seen everything you have on you. I've seen everything. I've seen all your videos. That's what they say. And I go, really? I don't see your name on the list of students uh, on exercise professional. Like, on what? I'm like, you know, so many of those videos on there say from class, blah, 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 exercise professional. I don't know how they missed that. But the other thing is, those things are between two and seven minutes long. That's not information. Oh, it's social media information, but it's sad that people out there think that's education. When someone says they've seen all my videos, that would be like them saying to a uh, Tom Hanks, I have seen the commercials for all your movies. Oh, wait, you won an Academy Award? I didn't know that. What for? Oh, you have two hour long things? Where are those? You got to rent them, dude. You got to buy them. You got to. Someone told me one time, a guy that had millions, he said, yeah, I'll give you some advice about commercial real estate, but realize if it's free, it by definition has no value. I kind of hold to that. So if you're not all that interested in committing yourself financially, and it's not a lot, it's not all at one time. It's not like, oh, pay $2,000 for this course. These, these classes are a la carte, meaning you see a topic you like, well, you, you want to start in order, there's an order. But if some physical therapist, some anybody sees one way down the road, so dive in there. That's why they're set up the way they are. And then you might see, well, I need to, I need to up my ability to understand this or certain things. Then they can start back through or whatever. But it's built for anybody to enter, enter and participate at any level they want. It is entirely, in my mind, built to prepare for hands-on. It is not standalone education. There's no way sitting in a chair can prepare anybody for exercise. There's no way a trainer can sit in a chair and properly train someone. Now, I know there's been some necessity for things like that. And usually, if someone's already worked with the client, they may or may not know enough, enough about them to understand their needs and the proper cueing for that person and what they commonly do that they need to be corrected on. But all of these people out there saying, online coaching, online coaching, come get certified. It's like, yeah, that's a scam and uh, it's nonsense and it's unethical. And if anybody out there who teaches that has a problem with that, come visit me. We'll have a debate. Not online, not that weenie version where people go back and forth writing stuff. Face-to-face, -face, that's how I debate. And if you're not good enough at doing face-to-face -face because you can't clarify your thoughts and you can't support what you say, then get out of my face. Not you, Rob. You're great. <laughs> Thanks so much. Appreciate that. Um, no, that's all great stuff. And just for my own sanity, curriculum. There, I said it. Um, no, man. It's like a, we had a president one time, and instead of saying, uh, strategically, it says something like strategery, and I'm like, that's a good word. Was that so W? I, 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 think, think, I think that might have been W. Great, 
That's a great word you made up. <laughs> yeah, it's just sometimes you get a bit dehydrated at the computer and the brain, the the, the neurons don't synapse one hundred percent well. But curriculum, curriculum is what I originally said, but it's not what I meant today. <laughs> um, no, listen, that's great stuff, Tom. Uh, finally, just one final question for you: um, If I was to bring you for dinner, and I said you could bring five people to dinner, and they could be dead or alive, who would you bring to this dinner, and why? How do dead people have dinner? I'm sorry. I know what you mean. But, um, man, what can I say that's not what everybody else would say? I wouldn't invite Einstein because he'd probably get food in his mustache, and that's not really appealing to me. Now, if we weren't having dinner and we were having drinks, definitely Einstein. Probably, um, who was I thinking about the other day? It'd be fun to hang out with. Now, in the 80s, I would have said Bruce Willis because I bet he could drink like a fish and still be funny. So that would be pretty cool. Oh, 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 Margot Robbie. And then the second person would be Margot Robbie. And I think the third person alternate might be Margot Robbie. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, I don't know, man. There's all these different things where it's like uh, – People that have done amazing things, people are going to laugh at this one. Uh, I think Oprah Winfrey would be awesome because she amassed a billion dollars. She came to own her own production company. She's articulate. She's clear about her goals. You don't have to like what someone does to appreciate what they do and how they do it and what they've achieved. So I would throw her in the list. There's, an, there's a writer that very few people probably realize they love his stuff. He's written movies, TV shows. It's incredibly fast-paced delivery of dialogue. His name is Aaron Sorkin. The first thing he wrote was A Few Good Men. West Wing. He was responsible for the line, you can't handle the truth. Mm. I mean, this guy, so you get these people together, three Margot Robbies and Oprah and an Einstein. We got a pretty good dinner going on there, don't you think? It, that's Aaron Sorkin who wrote The West Wing as well. Yeah, now you're talking. Now, you and I can drink because we can talk about that all night long. Oh, uh, I love The West Wing. Have you seen Newsroom? You have, no. Newsroom was an HBO um, series. It was only on for three seasons. And it was quite a while after. It's the same delivery, obviously a different setting. And, and they, you know, he's so great at bringing up ethics and mm -hmm. multiple sides, not just a biased side, but he brings up good sides of both, good parts of both sides, supposedly, uh, politics in that one. And, and, good journalism versus unethical journalism in this other one, but it's entertaining. It's awesome. So your job before we talk again, newsroom, buddy. All right. Well, if it has like those walking dialogues that are like yeah. legendary in the West wing, yeah. You know, Bartlett and Josh <laughs> and Leo unreal. Yeah. Oh man. I love the West wing. All right, Tom, that's absolutely phenomenal. I'll put everything that was mentioned in the show notes and everything that you have to offer in terms of education and whatnot. Um, so I really do appreciate it and listen for all the listeners as I always say at the end of every show until next time take care be well and stay strong mm -hmm.